Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. Good to see people we haven't seen in a long time. Um, it's just a joy to, to be together and, uh, you know, exploring God's word, discovering what he has for us. Um, you kind of ruined my joke, Mike, because last week you said that we were starting our series in Proverbs. And it says here, today I'm going to make Pastor Mike into a liar. Because last week he said we would be starting a series on the book of Proverbs. But today's sermon is based on 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <laughs> Verses 17 to 31, not Proverbs, but then you covered yourself and said it was the book of Proverbs and related passages. So you got ahead of that. He's not a liar. He's a good guy. Happy Father's Day. We are doing a series on Proverbs, which will include other wisdom literature. God's word is wise. Amen. That's where it's wise for us. And um, however, there is a foundation to lay before we can start unpacking some of the more... I guess, super-duper practical stuff in Proverbs. There's so much in Proverbs. There's so much to read. But it is possible to read Proverbs wrong. And we see it in the world where uh, people will um, kind of pick things, cherry-pick passages out of Proverbs because um, they are shrewd and, and, and wise things to do. However, this morning, I want to kind of lay a foundation that, uh, that wisdom... Wisdom in Christ is directly tied to the gospel. And so we have to read the book of Proverbs and we have to study the book of Proverbs in the context of the greater Bible, in the context of the, the book of Proverbs, actually, um, instead of cherry picking individual passages that we think will make us kind of um, smart people in this world. We have to read it for what it is. And so, um, yeah, we are eager to, to get into this series. Um, not just because it's a cool break between before we jump back into our series in Matthew in September, but because we think that wisdom is absolutely critical about how we should live in this world. So question for you, who here wants to live foolishly? Solid. The, the correct answer is no one. As I think about wisdom, I think about Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. And this passage is always given to me as a as the reason why Christians need to live wisely and why we should embrace wisdom. So if you want to turn to your Bibles quickly before we get into the main passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. Nobody here wants to live foolishly. And actually, I would say, largely, nobody really considers themselves a fool, right? You know, most people would say, yeah, you know, maybe I've made some mistakes, but I'm not a fool. That's kind of rude. Why would you say that, right? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. It says this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, who's heard that passage used primarily as like a time management um, verse, right? To make good use of the time. Who's heard that? If you search like time management verses in the Bible, that's always the main one. And then from there, it's like a steep decline into like, you know, something from like Second Chronicles or something that you don't recognize. This is like the flagship verse that people use to talk about time management. But what I see here, what I think if we look carefully, we'll see that it's actually not necessarily about time management, but about life management. It's about walking wisely. And I think these verses are so powerful for, for us. And so before we jump into the passage, I want to give us five reasons why we need to study the book of Proverbs from this verse. 
five reasons. There's, believe it or not, just five is probably more, but five reasons why we need to study the book of Proverbs. The, the first one is for self-awareness. So the first half of verse 15 says, look carefully at how you walk. Who here, if you, let's say you were to make 100 decisions a day, who here would be able to clearly articulate why they made those choices? Every single choice. What about 50%? 25? What are, we, what are you thinking? Like 10% maybe? You could say, yeah. This is why I did it. And you can also justify why it was a good choice. Not just the reason, but the, the, the reason why it was good, right? That makes it even lower. Uh, one thing I've noticed in the, in, 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 just in people is that very often we are people who just do things. And we're not, we're not really quite sure why. And so verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk. And I think that the word of God and the wisdom literature acts as a mirror for us to gain self-awareness. They give us clear insight to correctly understand our behaviors. And so church, like this is what, one of the reasons why we're studying Proverbs. We want to be able to give you this tool to be able to look at your own life Ask yourself, why am I doing this? Make adjustments where needed. But hopefully at the end of this series, and hopefully as we grow in our discipleship, and hopefully as we grow in our maturity in Christ, that percentage of decisions we make, we will be able to say, this is why I did it. This is why I did it, right? So self-awareness. Self-awareness is a huge thing in, the, in, in our walk, right? Knowing God and knowing ourselves, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing why we do certain things, knowing how we became the way we are today and knowing where we're going. So the first one is self-awareness. The second one is very very plainly to gain wisdom. He says to walk not as unwise, but as wise. So Proverbs 4, verses 5 to 7 says, Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get... Get insight. This plus several other passages in Proverbs show that the main way to walk as wise is to, you guessed it, to pursue wisdom or understanding or insight or prudence or discernment or discretion, right? And there's like probably dozens of other ways that, that the, the, the author of Proverbs says those different things. And so we want to, as a church, take this command seriously and walk wisely. So that's the second reason. The third, verse 16, the first part says to make the best use of the time. So we want to make best use of our time. So am I right or wrong? Life is short. Life is indeed short. And so Psalm 90 says this, 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The, to make good use of the time means to live effectively, to make good decisions that are advantageous. The difference is that while the world would agree, and I think everybody in this room would agree that we all should make good choices, the Word of God said that we must, says that we must make decisions that are advantageous to the kingdom of Christ, not merely ourselves. And so making good use of the time is not just about being shrewd. Making good use of the time is understanding that our time here is short. And that God has given us an opportunity to leave a mark on this world, right? To invest in future generations and um, 
Anybody who is over the age of 50 can testify to the fact it's like that, right? It's quick. When you're a little kid, you remember how long things used to take? How, things, how long things used to feel? Even a quick drive up to the, to the grocery store, you know, you get there and you're six minutes in the car and the kids are like, I'm bored. I'm just like, pretty soon you will realize that six minutes is the most useless amount of time. What can you do in six minutes? A lot, actually. But six minutes goes like this, right? And I can't imagine what six minutes feels like when I'm 50 or what it feels like when I'm 75 or even older, right? Time moves fast. Life is short, and so we're called to make the best of the time. So that's the third reason. The fourth reason, um, verse 16b says, the reason we have to make good use of the time is not only because life is short, but because the days are evil. Doesn't it seem like things are getting darker every day? Yeah? Doesn't it seem like the rates or the pace at which the world is getting darker just got cranked up like, right? As your leaders, we want to be able to help you to, to drive in the right direction because as, as the days goes on, the world is becoming harder and harder to navigate. And so the reason why we study the Proverbs is because the days are evil and we need help. That's the fourth reason. And the last reason, verse 17 says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Who here wants to know the will of God? Who here wants to know what to do? Very plainly, the goal of this series is to help us all understand God's will and to give us the tools to effectively obey him. So in summary, the reasons we're doing this proverb series is to, number one, help us, help us have self-awareness. Number two, to gain wisdom. Number three, to make good use of our time here on earth. Number four, to help us navigate an evil world. And number five, to help us understand the will of God. I think that are, that is an extremely compelling list <laughs> why we need to get into the proverbs. And as you're going to see, the proverbs... Today is more focused on the gospel, but you know, in weeks to come, we will, we will be looking at anxiety, we will be looking at money, we'll be looking at sex, we'll be looking at uh, seeking counsel, we'll be looking at work, all extremely relevant things to our lives, right? But for today, we're going to kind of take a, a, a bigger picture approach. And so with that in mind, our sermon today is called Human Wisdom versus God's Wisdom. And the reason we're starting here today is because as Christians, we must understand that any type of wisdom we can hope to have in this world must be rooted in Jesus Christ. Amen? And not in the way of the world. So let's open our Bibles. I mean, they're already open, so you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 17 to 31. First Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 17 to 31. And this, this, these verses are so uh, juicy. And so I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do full justice and squeeze uh, every drop out of these verses. But we're going to look at, um, we're going to get a lot out of it. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 17 to 31. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not God know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would teach us. You promised time and time again that you will lead us into all truth, and so we trust you to fulfill your promise. Change our hearts this morning, we pray. Amen. So today we're going to look at three unique qualities of godly wisdom from this passage. The first one is that godly wisdom is rooted in the cross. The second one is that godly wisdom is infinitely superior to human wisdom. And the third one is that godly wisdom boasts in God, not man. Godly wisdom is rooted in the cross. That's found in verses 17 to 18. So when we read these things, we have to we have to ask ourselves, why did Paul, or why did the author write these things? And in this case, why did Paul write this letter to the church in Corinth? Earlier in chapter 1, we see that Paul commands the church to agree with one another and that there be no divisions. Then he goes on to highlight the fact that the church was divided because they had chosen to follow human leaders. You guys remember that? Verses 11 to 12, if you look just a couple verses back, he says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's house have informed me that there, were, there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. By doing this, the people in Corinth were choosing to align themselves with men and not Jesus. Later in the passage, we'll see that the real, that real life in Christ leads us his followers uh, to boasting in him and not men. But for this point, it is important that we understand that the glue that holds Jesus' church together is not men, it's not people, it's not our eloquence, it's not our wisdom, it's not our strategy, it's not our abilities, it's not our reputations, it's not our budgets, right? It is the power of the gospel and the message of the cross, right? In Paul's society, eloquent speakers were recognized for their presentation skills. Their excellent use of words would serve their goal of wowing their audiences and overwhelming their opponents. Things like charisma, presence, personality, diction, vocabulary, flow, right? I'm sure you guys have all heard amazing public speakers in your life, right? A professor, a teacher, a TED Talk, Right? We respect uh, speakers, right? We, uh, I think everybody in this room loves to sit down and hear somebody wield that craft to be able to do it well, right? 
However, look at how Paul describes how he brought the gospel to Corinth. If you go forward to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, this is, how, this is Paul's style. Paul says this, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. I'm reading the NLT, by the way. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were, were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Right? So Paul, Paul was, uh, was basic. I think we, we see in history that Paul was actually very educated. And I think that Paul could have been very persuasive if he wanted to. And that doesn't mean that he, you know, didn't use his mind. That doesn't mean that he didn't use reasoning. We see in the book of Acts that Paul would go to the synagogue. He would reason with the Jewish men who were there, right? When you see that Peter says to be ready to give a, a reason for the hope that you have. And so the Bible doesn't say that we shouldn't be persuasive. The Bible doesn't say that we shouldn't be reasonable and thoughtful people, intelligent, you know, prepared. But what Paul is saying here is that he did not use lofty words. He used plain language. He, he was an everyman, right? He was a layman. He was one of us, down to earth. And so Paul, first he preached in a way that was very basic and plain. He was down to earth and used everyday language. In fact, it says that he was timid and trembling. So, you know, you look at, people will say this to me often, they'll be like, how are you, how are you doing, Jermaine? Well, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite nervous. Oh, well, we can't tell, <laughs> right? If you've ever done a presentation, or you've ever had to preach, you know, you're like a duck, right? You're calm over the water and your feet are, are going nuts on the bottom, right? But it took a while for me to realize that, that this is where God wants us, right? Because it's not in our strength and it's not in our wisdom, but it's in the power of God to deliver these things. And so first we see the way he did it was very basic and plain. But beyond his presentation, my main point is in this section is that Paul's ministry was rooted in the cross of Christ. He sought nothing but to preach Christ crucified. Amen. According to the world, the message of the cross is foolish. That's what it says in this passage. The message of the cross is foolish. I think maybe I will use another word that might be more hot or maybe more, you know, according to the world, the message of the cross is stupid, right? What's another word for, for foolish? Stupid, silly, right? A lot of words we can use here. We, necessarily, we don't necessarily use the word foolish, but I think if it said stupid there, we might, might get our backs up a little bit, right? In the mind of the world, the existence of a glorious creator who made us to worship him is stupid. In the mind of the world, the fact that we are deeply sinful beings who live in rebellion against the holy God is stupid. In the mind of the world, the fact that the wrath of God is coming due to our sinfulness is stupid. In the mind of the world, God sending Jesus to die on the cross, taking the wrath due to us, is stupid, silly, foolish. In the mind of the world, Jesus Christ raising from the dead, defeating death and Satan is foolish on so many levels. Silly, mythological, 
impossible, right? In the mind of the world, Jesus Christ extending salvation to us if we believe and repent is foolish, stupid, unnecessary, some might say. According to human wisdom, the way of the world is good and wise and smart. And yet Romans 1 directly speaks of this, almost using words that are very, very, very abrasive and aggressive. Romans 1, 18 to 19 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. People will say, well, it's not fair if people have never heard the gospel. Right? Verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because he has shown it to them. That's why later on he says, You are without excuse, man. You have no reason to deny him. It's not the lack of information. It's not the lack of wisdom. It's not the lack of revelation. It is the lack of righteousness. We push the truth away. We deny it. We are without excuse because God has made himself plain to us. Yet we suppress the truth and deny his existence. Right? That's how Romans 1 describes the world and its wisdom. And then Romans 1, 21 to 22 says, For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But what did they do? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is one of my favorite verses here. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Right? And so earlier I asked, who here wants to be foolish? Nobody raised their hand. That's a good thing. But I imagine if I were to walk into a room... Let's say I were to go up to the university and say, hey, raise your hand if you are an idiot. <laughs> Who would raise their hand? If I said, raise your hand if you are foolish, who would raise their hand? If I went into a public bus, who would raise their hand if I asked that question? There is nowhere in our society where you could go where people would be like, I don't know what I don't know. I need help. I need teaching. I need guidance. How often do you hear these things? You go on Facebook for 15 seconds and it's wisdom. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Everybody's an expert, right? Everybody thinks they know what they're, ta- what they know what they're talking about, right? Isn't this our world? Do you see the difference between human wisdom and godly wisdom? Church, we must understand that wisdom from the world is not a little bit like the Bible with a little God mixed in. Wisdom of the world and wisdom of God are polar opposites. They are incompatible. They are not the same. They literally deny the basic tenets of our faith. They are the opposite. They are not compatible. They are light and dark. And so this is why we have to understand that the book of Proverbs is not just merely a collection of shrewd things, shrewd advice, things that we can just kind of do to make our lives easier, right? And I've been guilty of that. You know, things are going a little tough. You're like, you make some bad choices. You're, you're feeling the heat from, from some of the choices you made in your, in your life. And you're like, let me, just, let me just check if there's anything in the Proverbs to kind of give me a little, you know, a little, maybe next time I'll choose better, right? That's not what the book of Proverbs is about. Because when you open the book of, the, of Proverbs, you see consistently that it's not about living wisely, but it's about living in relationship with God. Right? It's about being connected to your creator and that being the wisest thing you could ever do. That's why the book of Proverbs doesn't just have advice. 
but it is rammed, packed with references of fearing the Lord, right? That this, is, this used to always confuse me as a teenager. I'm here, I'm looking for advice. I want to know how to budget. I want to know how to, you know, overcome the lust that's in my heart. And you keep reading it over and over. It says, fear the Lord. I'm like, I'm not here for a religious lecture. I'm here for advice, right? Give me some skills. Give me something I can use in this world. And the Proverbs, the author of the Proverbs is like, that is what you need in the world, right? Proverbs 1, 7, 2, 5, 8, 13, 9, 10, 15, 33, 10, 27, 14, 2, 14, 26, 14, 27, 15, 16, 19, 23. All fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. The wisest thing you could ever do, right? It's not like it's there for like 15 seconds. It is literally the theme of the book, right? It is what every chapter is about. He basically is saying to us, if you don't fear the Lord, what else does it matter? What could you possibly do in this world that means anything, right? Even outside of Proverbs, Psalm chapter 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Ecclesiastes, what is the duty of man? Fear God and keep his commandments, right? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And so church, I want to encourage you here before I move on. Are you looking to have self-awareness about your behaviors? Are you looking to walk wisely? Do you want to make the best of your days on earth and navigate an evil world? Do you want to learn how to discern God's will for your life? If so, do not look to a world that foolishly denies a God who has made himself known. Rather, start with the gospel. Start with your creator. Start with your rebellion. Come to grips and terms with his wrath. Yet, Embrace his son, Jesus. Amen. Embrace the cross. Embrace the resurrection. Do these things and you will move towards wisdom. I promise you. Furthermore, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do so this morning. Yes, for your salvation. Yes, for where you will go when you die. Yes, for your purpose in life. But I will also say this. Believing and following Jesus is not only the best decision that you will ever make. But it is the wisest decision you will ever make. It is the smartest decision you will ever make. Okay? So that's the first point. Godly wisdom is rooted in the cross. If you ever feel like your life is going down a path where you're making bad choices, go back to the cross. Right? Go back to the cross. That's always where you can go. That's always where we're called to go. That's the first point. The second point is that godly wisdom is infinitely superior to human wisdom. And so looking at verse 19, Paul refers to a time in 2 Kings 18 and 19 when Israel supposedly followed wise human advice. And in this story, Israel forms an alliance with Egypt to strengthen their position against the Assyrian invasion. So here in verse 19... I'll just read a few again. Verse 19 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He's actually quoting Isaiah 29, where God is actually recalling this event in Egypt. And he's calling it foolish, right? In verses 19 to 25 here, Paul is reminding the church in Corinth that God's wisdom is infinitely superior and will always come out on top, even when it doesn't appear that it's the wisest choice. And so right away, church, I will say this to you. Who here has been in a place where you're asking God for questions? You're asking for answers. You got questions. You're like, why? 
I promise you that God's wisdom is superior to yours. And it's superior to the way we think, we think things should go. We have a picture of how we think things should turn out. But the way he's, he's moving is infinitely greater than ours. In verse 20, Paul actually gets sarcastic. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the, deba- where is the debater of this age? And I'll add to that list, where are the academics? Where are the lawyers? Where are the economists? Where are the philosophers? Where are the scientists? Where are the engineers? Where are they? Bring anyone who is considered smart and wise in the eyes of the world. Do any of them stand up to God's wisdom and power? Can any of them offer even a percentage of what God can offer? And by the way, I'm not saying that those positions are useless. I'm just saying, apart from Christ, what do they mean? By the power of the gospel, Paul reminds Corinth, and of course us this morning, that God has made all the so-called experts in this world who deny God look foolish through the gospel, regardless of their qualifications. In verse 22, Paul says that the Jews demanded signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. And what does that mean? Israel had high expectations for their, their Messiah, right? They were expecting an angry. We've been studying Matthew for what seems like a long time. And we've seen over and over that the, that the Jews are expecting uh, a, a warrior, uh, almost somebody who is indignant and angry, who would come back and crush the head of the Roman enemies, right? And so this reminds me of a story in the Old Testament um, from 1 Samuel 17 that is a great example of, uh, I guess, human wisdom and human power looking weird and foolish in relation to God, right? And his wisdom. First Samuel 17. The Israelites are at war with the Philistines in the Valley of Elah. And the Philistines roll out their best soldier, who is described as six cubits tall. What's a cubit, right? Cubit? 11 feet, I know. Nine. I already look good. Yeah? Nine. Foot and a half? Nine feet? That's big. First Samuel 17, verses 5 to 7 says... He had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. There's so many things I do not understand about that, (laughs) weight-wise and um, size-wise, right? But who is the Bible describing here? You may remember him from the story called Dave and the Giant Pickle and VeggieTales. Do you guys remember him? No, it's our childhood favorite, Goliath. Nine, nine feet? Google, man. Tell me 11. Yeah. Super tall. Between 9 and 11 feet. You, all, you may also remember him from stories where he's described as a symbol for all of our life's issues. If we just believe, we can be like David who overcomes his giant, right? I have to say, this story sits at the top of the list of top stories Christians botch in church history. Volume 1, page 1. I get irritated when I hear this story because it usually gets tainted by the self-help philosophy that seems so pervasive in the modern church and our culture. No church, we are not David. And this is not a feel-good story about how we can overcome. No, this is a very vivid illustration of how God has made the foolish, how God has made the wise of the world look foolish and how God has made the strong of the world look weak. 
So I'm gonna, I'm gonna run us through the story. Let's pretend we've never heard it. This is not a self-help story, right? If we go back a few chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Bible says that Israel demanded that they would have a king. And they said this, There shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. Verse 7 says that the reason Israel wanted a human king was because they were rejecting Yahweh, who was already their king. Turn the page over to chapter 9, and we see that God gives them a king after their own heart. You guys remember his name? King Saul. Saul was the image of human wisdom. He was a representation of the type of king that Israel deserved. One who looked the role, but in his heart was not a man of God. You guys remember how Saul was described? He was tall. What else was he? He's dark and handsome. Two out of three applied to me. I'm not tall. Saul, it says, chapter 9, verse 2, says, Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. <laughs> Literally the best looking guy. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So literally the tallest. Even in our society, we have elected a man based on his looks. So look where that's gotten us. Anyways. After Goliath cries out to have Israel present him a soldier to fight, where is Saul? Right? Let's fast forward back to Goliath. Where's Saul? Goliath shows up. Bring me your best. Where's Saul? Right? says this, when, Paul, when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Not just the people, but Saul. And so church, this is who we are in this story. We are the ones wetting our pants at the sight of a 9 to 11 foot giant who is impossible to beat. Every day for 40 days, Goliath would come out of the Philistine camp and demand a challenger. Of course, every day, every evening, no one would step up, right? Including Saul the man who was supposed to represent them and go out before them, the man who was uh, the tallest and the most handsome, became nothing, right? In the sight of Goliath. Next, the story introduces a man named Jesse from Bethlehem with eight sons. The eldest three were with Saul on the front lines, and the remaining five were tending to the fields and doing other things around the home. On the 40th day, Jesse gets his youngest son, David, a musician and a shepherd to bring grains and cheese up for his older brothers. After he brings his brothers their food, David overhears Goliath mocking Israel, demanding a challenger. And so David says this to the men who are just kind of there watching Goliath mock them. He says this, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Right? Of course, David's brothers hear David say this and they're like you're like four feet tall buddy what are you going to do word eventually gets to Saul who after questioning David for some odd reason lets David face him right and so David rolls up and you know you've heard the story he tries to put on the armor he's like the armor I haven't practiced in this armor right I think it probably was just too big right Um, Historians say that Saul would have been probably mid-30s, whereas David would have been anywhere from 15 to 18 years old, right? So for good reason, David puts on the armor and he's like, eh, I'm just going to go. I'm going to take this off. I'm just going to deal with this. So David rolls up to the field, into the valley, and and, and Goliath sees him and he says this to, to David. 
Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. It's graphic, right? Guarantee you didn't hear that in Sunday school. <laughs> Not in those words anyways. So this is where the story gets good. David says to Goliath in verses 45 to 47, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Ah, kid. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Amen? So let's see how the the story ends. Verses 48 to 51. Let's check it out. Verse 48 says this. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine right in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword out and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. Very violent. How hype is this story? Hold on, it gets even better. I believe that this is definitely a historic event that took place before David became king of Israel. And it's one that highlights the power of God and one that if you miss it over and over, there is so much doubt about this man's ability to slay Goliath, right? But over and over, it seems like the author is saying, notice how small David is. Notice how weak he is. He's not even holding a sword. No armor. Youngest of eight. He was literally just bringing up bread and cheese for his siblings, right? This is coming off of them highlighting Saul and how powerful and tall and good looking the guy was, right? And so they go through great lengths to show us that in the minds of the humans in the story, this is impossible, right? Human wisdom in this story dictates that there is no reason why David should be on the front line, right? Human wisdom would dictate that this they, they have no business beating the Philistines. But what makes this story hype is that it's also a foreshadowing to David's son, Jesus, who would crush the head of the serpent on behalf of his people. Amen? Both David and Jesus are head crushers in their own right. The thing I want to highlight is in that both stories, whether it is David or Jesus, human wisdom and human power dictates that their methods are both weak and foolish. Weak, because how could the Messiah win by dying? And foolish, because how does it make sense that God secures the victory and not us? How does it make sense that, 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 that the way to life is death? The whole thing doesn't make sense, right? And so whether you're talking about power or wisdom, the story of David and the story of Jesus make zero sense in the minds of a human being. 
And that's the mind of every human being. And this is why the Bible doesn't just include stories of God. The Bible includes human reaction. We've been going through Matthew. A ton of it is human reaction. And it's in their human wisdom. What, you know, like, what could come out of Bethlehem, right? What's your qualification? What's your business doing all these things? Over and over, we're seeing human wisdom respond to the person of Jesus. And it doesn't make sense. In both stories, according to human wisdom and power, business, sorry, David and Jesus have no business fighting. And yet, in God's wisdom and power, the victory is secured, becoming the gospel for us sitting here today. Amen? How cool is that? My point is that the wisdom of God is superior. While it may not have the immediate appearance of goodness or effectiveness, God's ways are always the right and best way. Do you understand this? God's ways are always the right and best way. And so as we dive into the more practical ends of wisdom, you know, whether it be money or anxiety or sex or career um, over the next few months, note that even though God's ways often look weak and foolish to the world, they are always supreme. Amen? They will always secure the victory in God's ways. And so I want you to read your Bible and see that this is God's pattern, starting with the gospel and then with other stories like David and Goliath and on and on, you know? The story of Goliath and David and Goliath is not a self-help story where we overcome our giants. Stories like that show that God works in, in what seems like foolish ways, but that he secures the victory so that no man may boast, which is the third um, thing that I'm going to touch on today. And I won't spend too much time here. Let's look at verses 26 to 31. But please note that godly wisdom boasts in God. Another way of saying it is like this. One way to know the difference between human wisdom and God's wisdom is where the focus is. And so I had a whole bunch of stuff here that I deleted. I know I'm going long. But you look at Colossians, you look at many places in the Proverbs, you look at Philippians, you look at Ephesians and other epistles. But over and over, wisdom is not just equated to good decision making, but wisdom is, is tied in with things like jealousy and pride and greed, right? And sure, you've seen like lust, right? Like you read through Proverbs and a wise man takes a different path home. The, the lustful man walks by the, the prostitute's house, for example. Wisdom is not something that is amoral. I'm sure there's things in life that we have to decide, you know, do I get combo one or combo two at McDonald's here, right? You have to make a lot of decisions that are of no moral consequence, yeah, neither. They have gluten-free options, I promise. Um, but we, ha- we, have to, we have to understand that everything has moral implications, right? Everything has moral implications. Everything is rooted in the scripture in a way that has to reflect the character of God. And so I want us to look, uh, I want us to note in the story of David and Goliath, several times in the story, David describes the victory and the power to defeat Goliath as God's. 1 Samuel 17, 37 says this, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. In this story, God uses the weak and young David to defeat Goliath. And in Jesus' ministry, Jesus calls ordinary men to follow him. In the gospel, God becomes a finite human and dies in humiliation and torture on Rome's most violent torture device. According to verse 26, the Holy Spirit called men who were not wise or powerful or noble to build his church, right? And it's also true of us. We are not wise 
or powerful or noble, though Chris can be a wise guy at times, we are not wise or powerful or noble. You guys are going to get so many wise guy jokes. Like, like just, this is going to be unbelievable. But why? Why this method? Why this system? Verses 28 to 29 says this. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And it says later, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So church, as we pursue lives marked by wisdom and discernment, we must understand that God's design will look foolish and alien to the world, yet it will all work out because of the Spirit's power and God's sovereignty. And because of the Spirit's power and not ours, we will glorify Him as we boast in His strength and His design and not ours. So um, we'll just end it there. Um, I'm excited to get into more of the Proverbs, but I hope this morning that we see that um, if we want to live wisely, we must start with the gospel. We must start with the cross. We must start with the, the power of God and the wisdom of God and not our limited abilities. And if we can start there, then I think that we can be people who make wise decisions and live for Jesus. Okay? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this word. And I just pray that you would remind us of the importance of the cross as we seek to live wisely for you. Help us to understand that we live not to boast in ourselves, but to boast in you. And help us to see that you use the weak and you use the lame and you use the sick and you use the hungry to accomplish your will. God, you did not come for people who are noble or wise or powerful. You came for us. We are weak and we are foolish and we are in need of you. And so, God, as we continue down our series of, of the Proverbs and we seek to be wise in this world, to live wisely, to make good decisions for your glory. I pray that you would help us to do it in a way that matches your design, that we would not be people who try to accomplish your purposes by our flesh, but we would be people who, though, though it looks silly to the world, we would be people who follow you and do things the way you want things to be done. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.